This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm with Josh Basse to examine John 6 for a second time. Looking at the test, Jesus gives to his disciples as they prepare to feed the 5,000. Yes, we've got ourselves a sticky little passage today. Uh, we're <laughs> we're going to be looking at this very strange test that Jesus gives his disciples. And uh, uh, I mean, before we jump into reading, I, I really want us to kind of sit back and, you know, put our, our good uh, question asking Bema thinking caps on. And as we're listening to this, I want us to really think, what exactly is the test? Because we're told Jesus is testing Philip here. We'll hear about that in a second. But what is the test really? And uh, Brent, why don't you go and take it away? Read the first uh, six verses there. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Right. So again, what exactly is the test? How is he testing Philip here? Um, and what are we to make of this? Like, we're, we're not given a ton of information here, um, other than just knowing that it is a test. But we have a couple pieces to the puzzle. Um, you know, we have the the background setting. We have crowds following them around. Jesus has been doing signs, and they're following him. Uh, and Passover is near. And I think if we kind of start thinking more about that, we have a lot of people following Jesus. There's a lot of signs. Passover is near, especially the, the Passover fact, because that he, he went out of his way to say that, especially because, you know, it's, he says it's near Passover. You know, it's John is putting that detail there for a reason. And if we think about Passover and signs uh, and what is Jesus's question? Where are we going to get bread so people can eat? You know, that's a very Passover-themed question. Bread is a big, important part of Passover. And in fact, Brent, um, what what is do you know the the specific uh, uh, laws around Passover and bread? Well, you have to have completely different kind of bread than you would normally have. Exactly. Yeah, fundamentally different kind of bread. You don't use any yeast, no leavening at all. And so Jesus' question is kind of weird in that respect, too, because, you know, it's like there may not even be that much bread around. If you say bread without the unleavened uh, qualification, do people automatically assume it's just regular bread? I would think so, yeah. Um, And, I mean, bread's a pretty big staple. Um, So, yeah, I would would assume that would be the case. Um, And it's also, you know, as always, the the Hebrew-to-Greek transition is going to be troublesome to us because the uh, word for bread in Hebrew can also technically just mean food generically uh, because bread kind of accompanies every single meal. So, you know, that's a, that's a good point, but um, presumably it's not Passover yet. It says Passover is near, but you know, if people are getting the leaven out of their house, it's certainly not going to be as abundant as it would normally be. But, um, to kind of get the the background here, um, you know, as to like, you know, Jesus is asking Philip a question about the people. 
so if we're going to look at the people, the people are following Jesus. It's near Passover and Jesus is doing a bunch of signs. And if we're going to draw a big parallel from this, what would we be looking at? The people are saying to themselves, hey, it's almost Passover. Here's this guy doing miracles. I know another Passover where there was a guy doing all these miraculous signs and wonders. That's Moses. The very first one. Exactly. And we're, you know, we're in captivity. We're in Roman oppression. We're ready to leave Egypt. Uh, and we're looking for a Moses to lead us. And so I, I wonder if that's, uh, you know, probably what's in the back of the people's heads as they're following Jesus, especially around this time of year, even if they're not maybe explicitly thinking that yet, that's like, you know, that's the vibe. I mean, you know, we've talked elsewhere in Bema about how, you know, around Passover, they sent in extra Roman uh, legions and leaders and stuff to, to make sure everything stayed ship shape because people get pretty rowdy when they think about Exodus and when they think about leaving Egypt when they're under oppression. So the people are probably already in this frame of mind of like, I'm ready to leave Egypt. And uh, this guy looks like he might be up to the task, you know? So to turn out to Jesus' question to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, there's two things I want to point out there. First of all, like I said already, it's kind of a, you know, if people are going to be throwing out their leaven, cleaning for Pesach. Like that's a very rigorous process. If you've ever um, been around an Orthodox Jewish community, they take that very seriously. They they literally like go around their house with a with a feather gathering like every single crumb and um, cleaning beer stains out of things like they, they take it very, very seriously. So, you know, it's very possible that there's not going to be a lot of bread to be found. And, you know, more broadly, I think Jesus is asking Philip, like, like, how are we going to take care of all these people? And I think when we bring those two concerns into the light of like the Passover atmosphere, I think Jesus is really asking Philip, you know, do you think we can give these people the the Pesach, the liberation that they're looking for? Um, and in a roundabout way, I think what Jesus is actually asking is like, do you think the people are getting what the signs are for? Are they picking up what I'm putting down? In other words, like, are they just looking for Jesus to play the role of Moses? Um, do they have certain expectations that Jesus is actually going to fulfill? Or are they, is there like kind of a mismatch between their expectations and what Jesus is actually going to provide for them? And I think that's what Jesus is asking Philip because, you know, if he's just asking them about bread, it's a little bit of a, a silly question, um, especially in the context of a rabbi and a student. Um, but asking, you know, looking at these people who want a certain type of Pesach and Jesus saying like, hey, can we give that to them? Can we actually give them the the liberation they're looking for. That's a juicy question for a, a young Talmud to answer. And uh, yeah, I think uh, what we'll see in short order uh, is that Philip gives a pretty dang good answer. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And having peeked ahead at your notes a little bit, I know that we have to dig into the NIV's footnotes here. Uh, under half a year's wages and note that the Greek says 200 denarii. Yes, 200 denarii. And uh, and that's important because, yeah, if it, it, it's a little bit, again, nonsensical if we're just talking about an amount of money because, yeah, 200 denarii would be a little over half a year's wages because uh, I think a denarii is a day's wages. So, you know, 200 is more than halfway through 365. Um, and it's a little bit 
like a if, if he's just answering the question straightforwardly, you know, the way I always heard it taught in Sunday school, the like Philip is just, you know, thinking in earthly terms and doesn't have enough faith and doesn't get that Jesus can do miracles yet. Um, then, you know, if like, let's just suppose that that's what he's saying is that he's literally just saying, hey, we don't have the money to get enough bread. First of all, that ignores the problem of it being Passover and it's going to be hard to find bread anyway. So why even bring up the issue of cost? And then further, like why specify an amount of money if that's not even the amount of money that you would need to feed the people properly? Like, cause he, he doesn't just say 200 denarii is what we would need. He says 200 denarii wouldn't be enough for everyone to just get a little bit. Like, you know, why not just say, Hey, we would need if, you know, 500 denarii to feed all these people. And we don't have that. Or simply say, we don't have enough money. Exactly. Like maybe 200 is what they have. Well, yes, that, that could be the one thing. But I think if that was the case, then uh, he would, you know, I think there's a problem with that. And that's the the scarcity of bread in general. It doesn't really answer the kind of undertone of Jesus's question there. And also like the number 200 denarii is pretty specific as well. And that got me digging. And I got to give a shout out here because this uh, episode, which will be in two parts <laughs> uh, because we have a lot of remezine to get through, ladies and gentlemen. So buck up. We're going to be hearing a lot of text today. But uh, I got to give a shout out to uh, last time I shouted out my uh, uh, fellow study member, Rachel Bergman. This time I'm going to shout out the other member of my Havara, Ben Casperson, because this part of the episode probably wouldn't exist because when I had kind of first cracked into John six and started figuring some of this stuff out, I was really stumped by this test. I was like, well, I don't know what Philip's saying. I don't know what Jesus is really saying. And, uh, we found a remez that kind of seemed to fit, but I wasn't seeing it. And Ben was the one who really pushed me. He was like, no, this is it. We got to dig in. And the more we dug in, it just kept clicking. So shout out to Ben. He rocks. He, uh, made this part possible. So, uh, really the, you know, this should come as no surprise to anyone who listens to this 200 denarii. It's a specific number. And if we're looking for a remezine, we're looking in the text, where are we going to find that? Now there's a little bit of a hang up here because a denarius is not around in the Tanakh. They don't talk about any, uh, denarii, uh, in the Tanakh, but they are silver coins. And if we look for stories with 200 silver shekels, we're left with a couple options. Um, but really only one of them fits the situation. And that is the story of Micah in judges 17 and 18. And why don't we go ahead and just read judges 17 first, just to get the setup. And then we'll, we'll read the conclusion of Micah's story and, uh, Judges 18 after that. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse. I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. I'm going to pause you right there because there's some weird things like this is, you know, for everyone who isn't, you know, intimately familiar with this random story in judges, uh, this is our first introduction to Micah. There's no preceding story, but the way we come into it, it's kind of, you know, in media res, like, you know, we come in after some things have already taken place. Um, there's this big amount of money, 1100, uh, shekels of silver. And, He's 
talking to his mom and he says, you spoke a curse over whoever took this money and look, here it is. I have it. And then instead of cursing, she kind of rescinds her curse by blessing him and he gives the money back to her. And she says, I'm going to give this money to God to make a carved image and a cast metal image and I'll give it back to you. And it's this very weird, like, what is going on here? Like, there's a very convoluted passing of money back and forth. Like, is there some communication problem? What's going on? And there's also some other interesting context because this number, uh, 1100 shekels of silver was very prominent in the previous story, the Samson story, because that's how much money the Philistines paid to Delilah to betray Samson. So there's a very strong hint that his mother here might be Delilah, which also, you know, that's very important for this story. It kind of casts some doubt maybe onto her intentions and, the other thing we notice here is that this character Micah seems to be a god fear. Like, you know, he, if he is indeed Samson's son and Delilah is his mom, then he would be the patriarch because, you know, Samson's story ends with him dying. So presumably this money would probably be his to do as he pleased with legally. Um, but he is so worried about this, uh, curse he, that his mother uttered in the name of, uh, Adonai that he gives her back all the money. And, um, and then she tells him that she was intending to use it to, uh, make some sort of, uh, carved and cast metal image, uh, presumably to, to honor or worship Adonai. Again, this is judges kind of back before, uh, things were, you know, ship shape. So it's, it's a little bit of the wild west out there. So it might seem odd to us that they're making images when we know that they're not supposed to do that, but you know, everyone kind of just did whatever. But at the very least we can see that Micah fears Adonai and, and certainly fears him more than, uh, uh, he cares about money, which is, you know, that's, that's saying something, especially in judges. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of wild, wild stuff that goes down in judges. So at the very least, you know, Micah is kind of a, a Boaz-esque figure, you know, a good guy in the midst of Judges. A hard thing to find. So anyway, with that being said, let's uh, let's continue. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods, and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living with the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Okay. So many repeated details in there. Yes, very much so. And the repetition is generally, again, setting up, it's kind of, most of it goes to emphasize um, that Micah is... Again, kind of in the, in the context of Judges, trying to follow Adonai as best as he can. Um, I mean, if we if we look at the details here, like, okay, so 
the chapter kind of ends with him finding this Levite priest and hiring him. And we might look at that kind of askew and be like, you're hiring your own priest. But let's remember that the story set up before that, that he had his son acting as like a, his household priest or whatever. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what his duties would be probably had to do with the ephod. I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, as soon as the Levite shows up, you know, he, he goes from, uh, having a priest that basically, you know, other than food and clothing, he, you know, he didn't have to pay his son 10 shekels a year. He finds this Levite and he's like, oh no, I want a Levite because I mean, at some level, Micah must, must, you know, have some knowledge of Torah and, and is making an attempt to follow it. So again, we have a lot of repetition of Micah's piety and his, his reverence for Adonai specifically. Um, now there's a couple things early on that, uh, in that passage or that part of the passage you read that I want to highlight. And the first is what happens with the silver he returns to his mom, because there's, it's a little unclearly worded and the rabbis have a lot of debate. Um, and all of it comes around the 200 pieces of silver, which after all is the remez that we're following. So we should look at that really closely. So he gives his silver back to his mom, which is 1100 shekels. And she takes 200 shekels and gave them to the silversmith who then turned the 200 shekels into, uh, the literal phrase is a carved image and a cast metal image, which to me is, it seems to indicate that it might be a very ornate piece if it requires like multiple kinds of, uh, metallurgical arts. Um, but you know, there's also a discrepancy in the numbers. Like what happened? She consecrated the whole 1100, but only 200 went to the silversmith. You're like, what's going on there? Did she just rip off her son? Or there is another possible explanation where maybe, um, one piece of the 1100 was used as the actual substance of the idol. And then the rest of it, maybe the 200 was the payment to the silversmith. Um, it's a little bit unclear whether or not like, the, uh, his mom who may or may not be Delilah is totally ripping him off or not. Um, there's certainly room for doubt there, especially given, you know, the, the hint that she might be Delilah or at least, uh, uh, is meant to evoke Delilah. Um, but nevertheless, the, the 200 shekels at root is going to represent Micah's piety and his willingness to like dedicate his, fortune, his, his wealth, his livelihood to the service of Adonai, which we see repeated throughout the chapter and him like, you know, uh, enticing this Levite to come and not just to like, again, we, we could look at the cynically and say, oh, Micah's, you know, just looking to get God on his good side. But, you know, he doesn't just tell the Levite like, Hey, you know, here's 10 shekels. So, uh, so God won't be mad at me. He says, you know, come be a father to me. Like he, he this seems like a very, um, a very earnest effort on Micah's part. Um, now there's something else I want to cover here. And that is like, what exactly is the priest doing? Um, because, you know, he, he says, you know, it will be good between God and me. And he uses the word tove there, you know, the same word that's used in creation. So again, we, we could look at that cynically and maybe, and maybe there's a touch of selfishness here, but I think, um, there is again, like that kind of earnest desire to, to have a good relationship with God. But the thing is, is that they, they do have a tabernacle at this point and it's in Shiloh, which is in the hill country of Ephraim. Um, I don't know exactly how far away it is, but presumably he would be able to go there pretty easily to worship Adonai. So 
And there doesn't seem to be anything here that talks about an altar or sacrifices being brought. So likely what the priest is doing is using the ephod, which um, we have scriptural evidence is used as kind of like a, um, a divination source. Like you could use it to ask God questions and God would respond. Um, David uses the ephod in this way. And I think there are a couple other places, but the rabbis are all pretty um, on board with that interpretation pretty universally that that's what the, the ephod was used for. So, you know, we have a man who is spending exorbitant amounts of money to create, you know, religious iconography and items to one, like, uh, uh, worship God. And then on the other hand, to like seek God's guidance and things. So again, we, we could get a little cagey about the, the idolatrous aspect of all this, but on the whole, especially in the context of judges, um, Micah seems to be a really good dude and really trying to follow God earnestly. And um, if we're going to keep in mind like why Philip is referencing this, I think what Philip is trying to say just on a very general level is that the people are like Micah. But in order to stand, understand like what how that answers Jesus's question. We're going to need to understand how Micah's story ends, which means we're going to have to read Judges 18. Right before we go on, I do have a couple of questions. Oh yeah, totally. Shoot. As far as the timeline here. So we have in verse four, the silversmith making the idol and it was put in Micah's house. But then after that, it says this man, Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. Mm -hmm. So is the, is the idol in addition to the other things that were already in place? Or was it like, Hey, I've got this idol now. I need to like build up some other structures around it because it'd be weird to just have this idol without like a more elaborate setup. Yeah. So the, the, the phrase denoting the shrine there is literally, um, uh, like house of God, Beit Elohim. Um, so presumably he like, he commissioned this like wildly expensive, um, uh, uh, image of God. And then, you know, you know, again, yeah, it's like, it probably looks awkward if you just put it on your kitchen table. So yeah, there's probably, um, a lot of, you know, he, he's, he's building like a little, maybe be too far to say like a little mini temple, but he, he is building like a, a shrine, like a full, like he has a lot of space in his, in his dwelling dedicated to Adonai. And I, I think it's, uh, you're you're probably right in that this is like additional stuff that he built up around this this central piece, but it, it does seem like the um, the silver image is probably like the centerpiece, the the thing that represents Adonai, and all these other things around it are kind of added over time um, and uh, are kind of like elaborate ornamentations on top of that. And and again, this would this would be. Um, seen as like greatly to, to Micah's credit. In fact, even to this day, when the rabbis talk about, you know, fulfilling the mitzvahs of Torah, they always talk about like how it's, it's better to go beyond just like fulfilling them, but to, to, to ornament the mitzvah, to do it in a beautiful way. And so we see that like Micah has that, that really pure desire to worship God where he, he doesn't just want to like, He's not just doing the bare minimum, showing up to temple, doing, you know, giving the sacrifices he needs to, like he is, 
going to exorbitant lengths to make his, his basically his whole little house, his whole bait of is all centered around uh, worshiping Adonai. And that, that is like the, like you said before, there's a lot of repetition here and it, and it all goes to reinforce that Micah wants to worship Adonai. Micah is like zealous in this regard. And the household gods, would that just be like a limited of an understanding of how God functions in their day? And so he's like, well, yeah, there must be some sort of spirits or gods or something at play in this particular place in my particular household. So I'm going to create these things and put them around the idol of the bigger, more important God and, and represent as like, Hey, my house and my, like everything going on here is in service to God. Yeah. It, it could be, uh, it could be other gods. I mean, again, you know, this is kind of a, like judges is one of the oldest books of the Bible that we have like records of. So it could be that this was, you know, still in the, uh, the, the birth pangs of monotheism when they were still, still had some of those old, uh, pantheistic ideas where that like wouldn't have been seen as a contradiction. Um, or, uh, you know, it, it could be, um, like, I don't know, they might even be representative of ancestors or something like that. I've, I've heard, um, Rachel told me once that, um, household gods were sometimes like used to symbolize like the, um, like inheritance basically. Um, so there, there could be a lot of things going on there. Um, this definitely suggests that like, you know, this, this bears the mark of judges. This is really, really old back before they, um, had the monotheism thing figured out. So it's my, my guess is just, it's, it's, uh, you know, some of the, those old pantheistic ideas, it might be, you know, additional local gods, or it might be like other gods that were considered associated with Adonai at this point. Like it, it's, it's unclear. And, you know, we know when they left, um, like when they left uh, uh, Egypt, you know, they were hanging around with uh, Jethro and some Midianites and some, it even says some Egyptians went with them. So there were, I mean, even in, you know, we, we talk about how, you know, the, the plagues were um, aimed at the different Egyptian gods. So there, there was still uh, a, a possible like way of looking at this and, and still believing that there were other gods that you needed to appease or whatnot. But uh, definitely this is showing that uh, Micah's reverence is primarily toward Adonai and everything else is secondary because, you know, we have, it's starting out with him being afraid of a curse from Adonai and then dedicating this vast sum of money to the worship of Adonai and, and everything being a shrine kind of built around that. And then him going out of his way to find a Levite, like this is a guy who is about Adonai. There may be some other uh, kind of cultural things, cultural state mainstays there, but um, it, it doesn't, seem to be the the point of the passage, I would say. Fair enough. Uh, on to Judges 18 then. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, Go explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him 
and said, He has hired me, and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. Which I find really interesting because there's no indication <laughs> whatsoever that he actually inquired of God. He just yes. Although this is this is where I think that probably his priestly duties was to like use the ephod to like divine what God wanted. So it I, I think that might be why they don't mention it. Because um, I mean that that's the only other piece of the puzzle. They have an ephod. We know it's used for divination. These guys come. They ask him a question of what God wants, and he gives them an answer. So it it could very well be that they just assume that, you know, the priest is going to do his one job sure, <laughs> since he's yeah. offering sacrifices there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zora and Eshtol, their fellow Danites asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen the land and it is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. Strange choice there, NIV. Yeah. Should, I, I would expect a whatsoever. <laughs> make, it, make it sound a little fancier. Um then 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zora and Eshtol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath, uh, Jearim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath, Jearim, is called Mahanah Dan to this day. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod? some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver. Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people, putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's... Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they put them in front of them and then turned and left? Uh -huh. <laughs> what, what does that mean? That seems like a really weird way to say that. That's a good question. We're uh, like the... Maybe that's completely beside the point, but that's just like... It, yeah, it, it is. kind of trips me up as I'm reading through it. The whole Danite story, I mean, th there's a lot that's interesting there throughout. Um, thankfully, we aren't going to dig into that too much because, yeah, there, there's a lot there. I'm guessing them putting the children and the livestock and the valuables up front is either they're, like, worried about being attacked from behind or they're putting their weakest in front. The, like, uh, But I don't know. They also put their valuables up there. I, I, I don't know what to make of that, and I didn't – honestly, I didn't look at that too closely because our focus is going to be on Micah. But, yeah, I, I think generally we can – 
look at the Danites and see that they aren't, they aren't great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they made some famously bad choices. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth-Rehov. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Yes. So not a great end for Micah. And an interesting detail there at the end that um, this Levite is apparently Moses' grandson. Uh, very strange detail to throw in right at the end. And I'm not going to make too much out of it, but you know, it would probably be some real juicy stuff there if uh, someone was inclined to dig into that. Uh, but the main point is that like, Micah loses everything, like all his piety, all his reverence for Adonai, all the, all of himself that he devoted to God was gone in literally like a single day. He lost it all. And I think this kind of plays off the same thing we saw earlier where, you know, maybe his mom was kind of using his piety by like, you know, conspicuously uttering this curse to get the money back. Like she's kind of playing off his piety to manipulate him. And I think again, here we see that Micah's piety kind of ends up being his downfall and that, you know, he, he's in, invested everything into creating this, uh, you know, wonderful shrine to Adonai and uh, without any concept that you know his little kingdom is kind of a house of cards and uh and now he can't do anything to stop it from being taken away from him uh so for, do you have any other thoughts on that brent oh not in particular i do think it's interesting that they say explicitly in the story like yeah micah realized that they were too strong for him so he's just like well yeah, I guess we'll go home. <laughs> yeah, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, they just they took it. You know, as a got bullied by a bigger, stronger dude, and he's got no recourse. And uh, and you know, part of that's just you know the uh, like it says repeatedly throughout the story. There's no king in these days. This is judges. This is the wild west. Um, and interestingly, we'll see the the issue of there not being uh, or the issue of there being a king or not being a king come up in Jesus's story. But um, like, again, let's back up and think like, what is the point Philip is making? Why is he likening the people to Micah? Why is he comparing them to this 200 shekels that that's used uh, to make this this image that is kind of, you know, the story literally ends by talking about that image. So it's kind of the um, 
the through line image wise of the whole story. Um, it represents Micah's piety and it's taken away from him. He's powerless to stop it. And we could look at that and see like, you know, on one hand, it, it kind of is a little bit strange because we would expect that Micah's piety would be rewarded by God protecting him. Um, but, you know, the I think what the story really goes to illustrate is that like piety by itself, like just pure devotion can also come with some maybe naivety, maybe um, some short sightedness. Um, and either way, I think Philip's point is that the people, they have a lot of desire to follow Jesus. The people are riled up and ready to go and ready to give it all, but they may not get the big picture. They may be a little bit naive. And if they had their way, they may, you know, like with the Levites say, oh, Jesus, come be our Levite. We'll set up our little mini kingdom here only for that kingdom to get knocked down because it's not, it's not stable. It's just uh, this little kind of um, insular thing they got going on. And so, again, in the context of Jesus's question about them looking at Jesus to maybe be their new Moses, um, on the one hand, it seems like he's kind of giving them some credit for for being, uh, uh, you know, pious and faithful and full of zeal for God, but that um, ultimately they are, again, like kind of short-sighted and naive um, and even without getting into like maybe some of the selfishness behind that or at least the the – not uh, not having as big of a scope as Jesus has. Um, uh, there's a, a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus is here to do. And, uh, and this is really interesting too, because after this, after Philip's answer, Andrew chimes in and gives his kind of addition to this answer. And why don't we go ahead and read that? Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So again, usually this is uh, used to dunk on Andrew and be like, oh, they don't know Jesus can do miracles yet. They don't get that he's the man. Um, but I think uh, Andrew is adding another remez to this. Um, the barley loaves, I mean... Barley is brought up a lot. It could be a remez to a lot of things. It's probably on one level a reference to Elisha, who uses barley loaves to feed a large number of people. It could also be a reference to the Sota ritual, where a, a husband is suspicious that his wife has cheated on him. Um, it could be a reference to root. There's a lot of barley imagery there, or just to Shavuot and the barley harvest in general. A lot of different directions we could go with that. But this time, I think there is another judge's remez to the story of Gideon. And this time, we just have a really short bit to read. Why don't you go ahead and read uh, Judges 7? Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. So right off the bat, this is really weird. Um, You might expect there to be some play on words between the word for barley loaf and the word for Gideon, but no, there's no connection there. Um, A lot of scholars are really perplexed by this. Um, But uh, I found uh, a really good... uh, internet comment uh by uh 
some random person, Eli Rosencraft, if you're out there and listening, thanks for hooking me up. Uh, he pulled uh, primarily from a uh, classic Talmudic commentary called Mayam Loez by a rabbi, Yaakov Cooley. Uh, and basically what he says is this, the barley cake does not have the gluten content of wheat, so it doesn't stick together like wheat bread. In this case, it is not even a proper leavened loaf. In fact, uh, the word it uses here is not lechem traditionally, but uga. And, uh, or, uh, it's not called new God. It's called a tzalil. So it's, it's like literally like a lump of just like dough that's been roasted, unleavened. And it's only eaten by the poorest of the poor, basically. Uh, it's kind of like hardtack or something. Uh, as it rolls toward the camp of Midian, it breaks into crumbs, just as Gideon's forces are progressively broken down from 32,000 to just 300, not even a battalion. Yet the crumbs overturn the tents of Midian, laying it flat like the unleavened cake that the Tzalil was when it started. And there's also an element here of tit for tat, because the original grievance they have with the Midianites is that they are stealing the harvest and leaving the Israelites destitute. And now those crumbs that they left the Israelites, the crumbs of the harvest, are returning to take revenge. And, uh, so the barley is kind of a symbol of lowliness, um, which kind of follows a lot of the themes of Gideon's whittling down of his men just in general, but also the fact that the ones he selected are the ones who lapped water and it compares them to dogs. So there's a lot going on in that image of, of, uh, comparing, uh, Gideon's army to this, this lowly lump of barley bread that, uh, overturns the mighty army of Midian. And so I think on one level, what Andrew is saying here is that I think he's suggesting that Jesus kind of follow the Gideon model and say, Hey, you know, if these people don't really get what we're doing, why don't we whittle them down? And, uh, the other thing is that, you know, we, uh, I believe it was, uh, I can't believe it wouldn't be pointed out, but, uh, in the previous episode that, you know, the five loaves and the two fish are obviously emblematic of Torah, the five books, the two tablets. And so what Andrew seems to be saying is like, Hey, if they're, if they're expecting you to do the Moses thing, why don't you just give them the teaching, but you know, give them the real thing. If they, if they aren't picking up what you're putting down, tell them what you're putting down and, through that process, they'll be, they'll be whittled down as their expectations are broken. I think that's what Andrew's saying. And that could be a stretch, but the fact is, is that that ends up being what Jesus does. And especially, you know, we're, since we're doing a repeat episode, I'm sure everyone is, uh, has been following along with the series remembers that, you know, Jesus really goes off the deep end and, uh, gets a lot of, you know, says a lot of contentious things that get a lot of people to leave him. So, I don't think it's a stretch to, to say that, um, uh, Philip and Andrew are like right on the money. And, and this isn't to say that like Jesus is necessarily following their advice, but rather they understand what Jesus is hinting at. They, they both have been paying attention to Jesus' teaching long enough. They know who Jesus, they know their rabbi well enough to get where he's going with it. When he points out and says, Hey, it's near Passover. Do you think we can actually feed these people? they get that he's saying like, are they actually on the right track? Can we, can we give them what they're looking for, what they're hungry for? And, uh, and they're saying, you know, Philip's saying not really, they're zealous, but uh, it's kind of a dead end here. Um, it seems like they don't get the bigger picture. And then Andrew jumps in and says, Hey, you know, it seems like you're saying we should, you know, whittle them down. So let's just give them the, the Torah that you have to give them. Now, as for like, 
what do we take away from this uh, before we dive into Jesus, like actually, um, you know, performing the miracle and engaging with the people? Um, I think it's really incredible to to take stock of the fact that Jesus is really not about blind success. I mean, I think especially if we think in modern context and, you know, having a big following is, you know, uh, uh, considered enviable among most people. Uh, you know, everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants to be on TV. Everyone wants to have a million followers or whatever. And Jesus is really not about that kind of blind success. You know, we kind of have a sense that winning is always good. More is always better. And Jesus seems to like not be, um, against these people following him, but really having a, a more, um, qualitative and uh, uh, more rooted understanding of what he is actually trying to accomplish um, rather than just, you know, having big numbers and a big following. He's not just trying to pump up the Jesus brand and get, you know, get buzz generated around Jesus. He is trying to build kingdom. He has goals to build something that are bigger than him. And and when I say that, I should say like Jesus, the, the man who lived for, you know, 33 years, not Jesus, the you know, eternal, infinite Jesus. Well, and I would say n- bigger than the moment that he's living in too. Like it's, exactly. it's not just about exactly. this crowd here. It's about, you know, reaching, reaching the world. Exactly. And I think we could all learn from that. You know, we have a, like one of the deepest concepts, I think in, in America, the way we've like particularly metabolized Hellenism and all those other, you know, juicy Western things that we love is that like winning is so important to us. And it's, really quite perplexing, especially when we put it in more practical terms to intentionally lose, to intentionally shrink your audience, to intentionally push people away when you're trying to build something doesn't make any sense. But when we look at it with Jesus's eyes, it, it really, um, can change and and help us divorce ourselves of that kind of blind success, you know, when it all costs winning is always great mentality. And I think that's something that's really important when we do kingdom work and when we build our own communities. And that's that's uh, something that is always good to keep in mind. Definitely. Well, I think that does it for this uh, this first part of our reexamination of John Sinks. If that's mm-hmm. good for you, um, yeah, I do think we should give people a brief update. Oh yes, on your health <laughs> situation. So. Just just so everyone knows where we're all at here. So this is, um, we're talking to you from episode 286. Uh, Josh's last episode, 281, has been out for less than two weeks. So it's June 14th now. Mm-hmm. That episode came out June 2nd. Uh, and we recorded that episode April 19th. And <laughs> in, the, in the less than uh, two months since we recorded that first episode, so many things have changed. Yes. <laughs> so many things have been moving quickly. And this episode that we're talking on right now is supposed to come out in three weeks, but there's a very good chance um, quite a bit could change between now and then as well. So <laughs> yes, we'll, yes. we'll give you the update as we have it now, but possibly after the music of this episode or next week's episode, um, there may be an extra little segment um, with further information because things are happening quickly. Yes, things are happening very quickly. Yeah. So uh, since the last time we recorded, I got a phone call from the Mayo Clinic and they told me that I am at the top of the donor list. Uh, Praise God. So we are 
up in Minnesota right now, waiting on a liver. Um, we did all the pretty much every preliminary thing we needed to do uh, before the surgery. Um, I had a little pre-surgery that was kind of the last big um, bottleneck. Basically, they were checking to see if the cancer had spread outside my liver. Because if it had, then you know there's kind of not a lot we can do. And thankfully, the cancer hasn't spread. Um, doesn't seem to be. Uh, spreading throughout the liver even that much at all. So there are lots of good signs. Um, the doctors think that it'll be a pretty uncomplicated surgery and, uh, things have been going well. So, uh, thank you for everyone who's been praying and, uh, supporting us, uh, in every way. And please continue to pray. And, and, uh, and, uh, also, uh, to the, to the, you know, time delay issue, um, once again, I want to plug our, our caring bridge site. Um, my wife writes, uh, wonderful little updates on there pretty frequently. So, you know, if you, if you do want to stay caught up on what's going on with me and, uh, my health, that is going to be the best place to do it. And, uh, then you won't have to wait on, uh, on these episodes to come out to, to hear the, the good news. Uh, so yeah, things are going well, things are moving fast and, uh, we're very thankful that God's been moving this thing along. Yeah. And if you do sign up for the Caring Bridge, you can actually go back and look at all of the journal entries in the past and and kind of get caught up if you if you haven't uh, been following Josh's story up to this point. So, Oh, absolutely. And, and you really, you shouldn't even do it for me. You should do it to get to know my wife because she is lovely. She's my favorite person and uh, she puts a lot of her personality into those updates. So you'll, you'll get to know <laughs> the two of us a lot better. Yeah, it and, is good. Uh, yeah. It's fun. She's great. And that was 281. If for some reason you missed episode 281, I don't know why you would be listening to this John episode if you hadn't listened to the previous John <laughs> episodes. But if for some reason you came here, uh, you can go back to 281 where Josh gives his initial story on his health and uh, and all the links there. So, uh, yeah, I think that'll do it for this episode, Josh. Sounds good. All right. We'll see you in part two. Sounds good. Uh, if you need to find more details about the show, you can go to BamonDeception.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast and we will talk to you again soon with some more John six goodness.